Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or leave a comment on YouTube. Hello, I'm Anusha Kelly and Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our political correspondent, Freddie Haywood. And now you've been digging around our listeners' questions. What's the first one that you've got? Yeah, we've got a question from Michael. He says, various MPs have been accused of not doing their jobs recently, with Rishi Sunak now aiming this accusation at the Dean Doris. MPs are well paid and would not get away with this in equivalent jobs. Would it be realistic to define criteria that could be used to automatically trigger an inquiry into an MP's work? or even a recall, such as the number of votes attended or clinics held? Okay, this is a really interesting and important question. And for some context for our listeners who might not have kept up with this saga, Nadine Doris, she's Tory MP for Mid-Bedfordshire, when she felt she'd been blocked from getting a peerage on the 9th of June, she said she'd stand down with immediate effect, but she hasn't yet done that. So yeah. she hasn't triggered the process for a by-election in her seat. She also hasn't spoken in the Commons since last June, and she's only voted 10 times in votes in the Commons since last July. Um that's all within the rules, but it is very frustrating for her constituents. And there's a few um, bits of graffiti and signs that have gone up saying Dossa Doris yeah. around those parts. But it's also frustrating for Rishi Sunak as well, who just wants the by-election to you know, come along so that he can mm. fight it and get it over with. He said people aren't being properly represented by her in her seat. Um, so this is an interesting question. It basically says, should we sort of codify what MPs are expected to do in office? And if they fall below those standards, then we can recall them or there should be some kind of uh, review into their work. What already, you know, what standards do they have to meet already so as not to be recalled? The first thing to note is that MPs are not employees. They're elected to their office and they get a salary, get the office, their, their actual office, uh, things like that by virtue of being elected. It's not like uh, they're appointed and there's no system as we often talk about. In terms of recall, the key thing to look at is the Recall Act from 2015, which the coalition brought in. And it basically says that a by-election can be triggered if a recall petition is signed by 10% of the constituency. And the only way you can get a recall petition is if an MP is suspended for 10 days from the House of Commons, if they are handed down a custodial prison sentence. And the third one is misleading expenses claims. Okay. So they're the three things. I think part of the reason that it came into being was the expenses scandal back at the end of 
the new Labour years. But the key thing to note is that constituents themselves can't initiate the recall. It has to be because of one of those three reasons. So there is a little bit of um, inaccessibility to constituents there, but also note that it's been used quite a lot recently. Yeah. Remember, that was one of the reasons or the key reason that Boris Johnson uh, left the House of Commons is because he didn't want to face that recall petition and that potential by-election that we saw in Uxbridge recently. It's a really interesting uh, question. I'm always of the opinion that because the House of Commons is the most important democratic institution in the country and because MPs are elected to their offices there should be minimal interference in what they have to do. I don't think it should be for the government to stipulate how uh, MPs act. It should be up to them to decide. Having said that there are lots of MPs such as Nadine Doris who aren't really fulfilling their duty but to be frank that means that her constituents can get rid of her at the by-election if it comes uh, or the general election. So that's the mechanism to keep MPs in check. It's through elections. Now, you could say that most constituents don't really vote for their MP, they vote for the party. So the the democratic accountability link there is uh, not as strong as it might be. But if you're someone like Nadine Doris or you have a really poorly attending MP who's not really doing their job, I think the other parties in the constituency will make it clear that that's one of the reasons that I need to get rid of them. So, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the problem with it is that you've got five years or so to wait, you know, yeah. if, if there's not an election in the meantime or a by-election. And five years without proper representation from your MP, you know, can be practically difficult. You might have things that... they Because yeah. they, MPs can expedite issues that constituents have. So, you know, you might be without the kind of process that someone in the neighbouring constituency is able to access. Although usually they will have caseworkers to do some of that work for them. But also, I think there's a sort of credibility gap there. So, you you know, everyone knows that MPs are paid nearly 87 grand. And if they're not doing their job, you know, you look at your own life and you think, God, if I wasn't doing my job and I was being paid that amount, I'd probably be sacked, you know. So yeah. I think it's it's it, there's, a, there's a trust issue there as well, which degrades, mm-hmm. I think, our democracy a bit. Even though, as you say, of course, it should be Parliament ultimately's decision on how an MP should be sanctioned. And then the public has a say in that when it goes to recall. But I do, I do think that there could be a better way of holding MPs to their jobs. The big problem with this question, I think, is when it says you wouldn't get away with this in other equivalent jobs. What other equivalent jobs are there? Because exactly. actually M- MPs' roles are so varied. You know, you have to be a social worker, a counsellor, a legislator, a negotiator, a Minister, writer, a speaker, yeah. a broadcaster. There's so many different roles that are expected of MPs now that it's impossible to do all of them. Actually, the pay for that isn't particularly high if you think of jobs in any of those individual yeah. equivalent professions and the amount of time you know that is expected of you to do those jobs well and the responsibility that you have for mm. people's lives. And people have different skills as well. So you have some MPs who are excellent at the parliamentary procedure side of things and they'll be very good at holding MPs like Nadine Doris to account, for example. Or you'll have someone like Nadine Doris who is deemed by Talk TV as a good broadcaster and so Mm -hmm. she has a show on there. And all of these things, you know, contribute to a certain extent to the... To public life in a way. I mean, people would, you know, query the, the latter, but, you know, we, we, it means that we hear on, hear what our politicians think about things and, and we're able to question them. So you, you don't have any one job for them. And perhaps that means that we're giving our MPs too much to do and the yeah. job isn't defined enough. Or perhaps it means that, you know, you do have to have this slight vagueness of what we expect of them when they're in office. Yeah, I think... That's the key thing. What is their job at the moment? So I think there are two sort of approaches to this question and whether they have too much to do. First of all, 
an MP can be a minister and an MP at the same time because lots of ministers or all ministers do that. So we know it's possible. So that brings into question how time-consuming the job of an MP is. We also know that in uh, recent decades, the job of an MP has expanded to such an extent that they are now inundated with requests for help from their constituents in a way that didn't really happen in the past. I think in part maybe it's because Brexit thrust MPs into the national debate much more uh, to the extent that people thought that their local MP could solve all their problems when maybe it was a problem with the council or maybe it was a problem with DWP or whatever it is. MPs have now become the, the lightning rod for many of those complaints within society. That's extremely draining for them. And they also, lots of them just don't have the infrastructure in their offices to deal with some of these problems. They don't have enough staff, for instance. So two approaches to that question. I think the other thing is really interesting what you're saying about writing, speaking, maybe being on talk TV. (laughs) I think Jesse Norman, who's a conservative MP and a minister, he's got a new book coming out. I think it's a novel. I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, he's got a new book coming out and he received a lot of criticism for Mm -hmm. it. Uh, online. And it just struck me as why would we not want our leading politicians to be writing, thinking, engaging with uh, ideas and literature? That strikes me as quite a valuable thing for a politician to do. This whole expectation of MPs to be constantly working, to never go on holiday, Mm. to to not have any downtime, to not read, write, think, strikes me as just uh, unrealistic and also counterproductive. If we have a MP like Jesse Norman, who takes an extreme interest in Edmund Burke, for instance, or any conservative thinker, that might be good for politics and the conservative party that they're not so ideologically wayward all of the time without any ballast uh, to make a sense of what they're doing. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. No, and I suppose it gives you an insight, even if you don't agree with what they're writing, it gives you an insight into where their ideas come from and how they influence the party. So Britannia Unchained, the book by Liz Truss, Dominic Raab, Priti Patel, Kwasi Kwarteng, of course, you know, that, that gave a great insight into what happened afterwards. It was, you know, quite miserable the way it all turned out. But, you know, you did have that, you did have that information there to work out how they came to behave like they did once they were in office. And so it can be enlightening. The problem is that you do get MPs who are doing work that isn't necessarily that that uh, enriching for public life, like being paid by lobbyists and doing after dinner speeches and getting getting a lot of money for that while they're working as an MP. And I think, you know, when you look at your own workplace, you know, the ordinary casual observer might think, well, that's unfair because I'm not getting that extra bit of cash while I'm sort of on the job elsewhere. So again, I think it degrades that trust. It does. On that, I think that's one of the best reasons to increase MPs' pay. If you look at studies of corruption around the world, for instance, one of the best ways to combat bribery is to actually pay people properly because if they have a proper salary, they don't need to take a bribe. And I'm not saying lobbying is bribery, but there's a there's a parallel there. Yeah, there's I mean, a conflict of interest risk exactly. there. Yeah. They just need to be paid properly to do their job and not be vulnerable to these organisations and companies that will pay them lots of money. Of course, you would say they shouldn't be doing that anyway. Yeah, I agree. However, we need to guard against that and create a system whereby MPs are self-sufficient. They can do their job. They've got time to do it. We are clear about what they have to do and what they're not responsible for, rather than just constantly complaining about MPs 
um, trying to do their job and, and them, them not really understanding what they have to do, constituents not really understanding what their job is, I think it needs to be much clearer. Mm. Yeah, and that's something that we can never really bring about. I mean, I remember interviewing Peter yeah. Bottomley, father of the house. He um, he said in the interview, MPs should be paid as much as doctors and head teachers. And uh, I mean, it just absolutely yeah, remember, yeah. blew up. And I, I did feel a bit sorry for him. Yeah. But when he was telling me this, I thought, okay, <laughs> it's just people don't want to hear it, do they? Um, no. But we should give our listeners a bit of an update before we move on to the next question about these by-elections. So yes. mid-beds is not by-election as far as we know. No, Nadine no, no. Doris I, I was not left one Tory seat. the other day and they think that she's going to stay into the next election. Wow, okay. Because they think she's getting a salary, as, we t- as we've spoken about. Uh, it's quite close to the general election anyway. Uh, it was going to cause more speculation and intrigue for Rishi Sunak, which she wants to uh, bring about. The other thing to note about Nadine Doris is she's got a book coming out in September called The Plot Against Boris Johnson just before party conference. So I don't think she'll want to leave before then uh, because if she's an MP, it means that she'll get more attention for her book. So Yes, well, and also see. a lot of people will want to interview her about her book so they can ask her, are you staying or going? What's yeah, going yeah. on? So yeah. it's quite a clever marketing technique there. Sad but true. <laughs> we can add that marketing to the list of mm. things MPs need to be good at. Um, and then there's also a potential by-election in Tamworth. Chris Pincher, who, you know, whose behaviour or alleged behaviour was the reason for Boris Johnson's downfall, actually, yeah. in the end. He's appealing the Parliamentary Standards Body's decision that he should be suspended for eight weeks. And this is over groping claims. Still uh, writes so that- a column for the critic, though, on uh, on wine every week. OK, well, there we go. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there could be a recall petition there, but they're waiting for his appeal to be complete. Um, But Ben Walker, our polling expert, has said that actually the seat isn't really a bellwether and could stay Tory even with the polling that we have now. Whereas mid-beds is more of a potential bet for Labour. Yeah, and Labour already extremely focused on mid-beds. They've basically said to the campaign team, you have as much money as you want. They're out campaigning all the time. They're taking it extremely seriously. After the break, Freddie will introduce the second question. Uh, Give us a clue on what that's about. We're going back to the 1990s. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Okay, Freddie, what's the second question? So we've got a question here from Matt who asks, you recently compared the run-up to the 97 election and the upcoming one in 24, yet Blair faced a very different kind of opponent in major, a largely pro-European and uncharismatic centrist. 
Starmer is up against a much more right-wing iteration of the party, which makes his reluctance to speak out against Sunak's policies much harder to understand. The Conservative Party has arguably never been in a more chaotic state. Can we really excuse Starmer for failing to offer a more hopeful and coherent set of policies? So I think the really interesting point here is the comparison between Sunak and Major. We've basically been comparing Starmer and Blair a lot recently, as people tend to. But what about Sunak and Major, Anish? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think on the face of it, there is quite a lot of similarity. So neither of them were elected. They both came in after sort of powerhouse prime ministers, uh, if you ignore Liz Truss. They are sort of leading a party at a time when it's uh, in a time of sleaze, so-called mm. sleaze. And also they kind of seem like leaders who are managing decline or managing reputation rather than uh, coming in with a big vision or a big structural change to the economy like their previous. So, you know, Boris Johnson did have a different view of how the economy should be run yeah. than previous to- recent Tory administrations. And then, you know, Major was coming in after Thatcher, of course. Um, mm. So there is a similarity there. Also, I think um, Sunak's had his own version of Black Wednesday, even though he wasn't prime minister at the time. Yeah. So that was the mini budget, budget yeah. um, which has affected people with mortgages particularly, which is, you know, other people are affected too, of course, but politically very significant that people with mortgages have been affected, like after Black Wednesday. So there is a great deal of similarity. But as our questioner makes this point, Sunak is is a more right-wing opponent than Major was. I think... You know, we can we can debate this, actually. George Eaton, uh, one of our editors here, has mm. written, I think, numerous times about how uh, Sunak is the most Thatcherite prime minister since Thatcher. He would absolutely love that. I think when he was running for the Tory leadership, he was saying he wanted to run the economy like Thatcher. Yeah. He's been, you know, photographed in her old car. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he likes, you know, any Tory leader likes those comparisons, as we've yeah. seen. But actually, what's really interesting, and I think more relevant than where he is ideologically, is how the public view him. Mm. And actually, he reads as quite centrist to the public. Mm-hmm. We did some polling with Redfield and Wilton, who give us polling questions sometimes. And that found that um, voters can't tell if he's right wing. And also, most voters see, them, see themselves as centrist and see the country as centrist as well. So yeah. they're kind of projecting their own politics onto Sunak, but also onto Starmer as well. He Also, most voters felt that he was centrist yeah probably more accurate i think there's a contradiction at the heart of sunak's politics is that he's he confesses to be a fiscal conservatives who loves low taxes uh, and wants to control state spending over the past two years he's been forced to spend billions and billions of pounds first on that furlough scheme as chancellor and now is on the energy price cap and and lots of lots of other things you know pensions benefits lots of Parts, lots of sections of the of the state have increased under Sunak, which he doesn't profess to want to do. So that's the contradiction at the heart. <laughs> Immigration's of gone up. Yeah, state spending's gone up. gone up. Taxes have gone up. But going back to major, it, I think the comparison is extremely interesting. One of the reasons I don't think it necessarily holds up is that major came after Thatcher and was sort of seen as the man- manager of her legacy. Mm-hmm. Sunak's come after Cameron May, Johnson Truss all of whom were quite different prime ministers. There's not necessarily as coherent a project of the past 13 years. You had the Boris Johnson rejection, or at least they tried to reject the language of austerity and move back to funding public services and police and and that sort of thing. Then we had the free market uh, crash of Liz Truss. And now we've got Rishi Sunak. So there are they're much more distinct politicians than Thatcher and Major were. And I think that's politically relevant because... 
it, it means there's less of a sense of, okay, your time's up now. I think that's still there completely, but it's not like the project of the past nearly nearly two decades of, of Thatcherism is up. And I think that's one of the reasons that Rishi Sunak's actually got higher approval ratings. Um, he is seen as slightly different to his predecessors. Yeah, He's also not been in for as long as Major was uh, in the run-up to 97. So people don't yet know him as well. He's not um, had that inevitable collapse in approval ratings that happens with politicians over time. So there are some differences. Yeah. And he's had his ups and downs as well. I mean, you mentioned what he had to do during the pandemic when he was Chancellor. I think he was the most popular politician in the country other than yeah. Andy Burnham back people then. people are free Nando's and you're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he should try that just before the next election. Yeah, God. The Electoral Commission would love that. That's I think... going to be a fun podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting because what he has done is he has taken the party to the right on certain issues, mm. but he's done it in a way that his style and presentation means the public hasn't necessarily noticed that yet, even though they are very, you know, um, <laughs> unsettled and and, and uh, disillusioned with the way that the country is being yeah. run. He's managed to do it in a way where people still say to you, well, at least he's not Liz Truss or, you know, Boris Johnson really let us down. Yeah. There's not that feeling about Rishi Sunak even now. I think I think the worst that he gets is that he's, he feels quite weak, someone who's not able to stand up to the issues yeah. in, in his party but also not even in the right country wing, as well. just weak. Yeah, 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 not even, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, and the other thing on that, which is interesting, is that he's quite successfully managed to use Suella Braverman as the, the key spokesperson on immigration. I think that's also helped the fact that people don't think he's necessarily as right-wing as he is. But it's also, you know, as we've spoken about before, it's also just about vibes. Mm -hmm. It's about having a suit that's slightly too small for you. It's about <laughs> having gelled hair. It's about liking Taylor Swift. It's about for some reason, proclaiming that you're really into technology. All these things sort of add up to point to a more modern politician, someone who's more attuned to the technological revolution, someone who's looking forward, which I think contributes to the perception that he's not as right-wing as he is. Yes, I think it's the, the nerd goggles, isn't it? The nerd goggles. Yeah. And, and our questioner wants to know sort of how Starmer should deal with that. It's interesting because I think when Sunak became leader, we were making comparisons between the two men presentationally. Obviously, their politics yeah. are very different, but... You know, they both have the gelled hair, managerial presence type mm. thing. Starmer's actually very different, though, isn't he? He's not. Uh, he's there's not the nerd goggles there. There aren't the nerd goggles. There's the sort of loyally institutionalized mm. establishment goggles. I just wish, yeah, Starmer needs to mess up his hair. That's the that's the one of the key things presentationally. I can't believe I'm going to say this on the podcast. Go. I've said it to you many times privately, but he he obviously has naturally curly hair, right? When you oh. look when you look at pictures of him when he was younger, <laughs> he has curly hair, and he's sort of. Forced it down. It kind yeah. of reminds me what I used to do when I was in yeah. my teens. I used to like straighten my hair because that's what it had to look like then. And then you went out and it would just immediately puff up again. And I think he he has that slight yeah. frazzled, and to oily look. We're being <laughs> frivolous. I would argue that TV now dominates politics, and it's one of the most important things yeah. in dictating public opinion is how you just come across on screen. Just to preempt that criticism. <laughs> yeah, I did actually message someone in his office about this. I didn't get a reply. What that he needs to change his, change yeah. his style. I'm sure they get a lot of that and I'm sure they love it every time <laughs> that you give them advice in their presentation. <laughs> Please keep listening to this podcast, guys. Sorry. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming in. If you'd like to send one, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can just leave a comment under the video. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Freddie Hayward. We'll be back on Monday to chat to our global affairs editor, Katie Stallard, who's on the ground reporting in Ukraine. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. 
You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for New Statesman. We're produced by Matt Murphy. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.